When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes and various other places. And I'm Sam Abual Samet from Navigant Research and uh, various other places as well. And I'm Rebecca Linlin from Rebecca Drives and Venus, apparently, because I'm a woman. <laughs> Well, I mean, you could also say various other places and keep we're all from various other places. I had to try. I had to mix it up a little. Yeah. We uh, we are all made of stars. Um so, anyway, Speaking of not hey, rambling. It, yeah. <laughs> Listen, if it keeps on raining, the levee's going to break. I just I need a little bit of an hey, But this is appropriate though um, because it's it's the last week of Big Bang Theory. One of my favorite oh, that's right. favorite shows. Really? Of all time. I think I watched I think I watched a half a half an episode oh. once. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I, I could watch it for hours. Hours and hours. So it is uh <laughs> what is it? It's the it's the fourteenth today? The fifteenth. Yeah, fourteenth of May, twenty nineteen. I thought it was the fifteenth. No, it's I think I think Rebecca's it's right. I think it's the fifteenth. We're yeah, oh, yeah it so is the there was a surprisingly um sentimental Send off for the show on All Things Considered. Today. Oh, there was. Yeah, uh, so you should go find I should. it. Um, I'll listen. I'm, I'm sure they've got it. I'll listen. Um, so yeah, I've never watched an episode. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it is so incredibly funny. It's so cleverly done. That's what I love about it. Is it's very cleverly written. Ah, well, you know what? We'll just watch it and reruns because okay. that's I, then I can binge on the whole okay. series. Um, so anyway. We'll, we'll talk about cars, but hey, before we get into that, I actually, um, I managed to go to an event and see the Jeep Gladiator and the new Ram HD trucks. Uh, they, they brought them to New nice. England. And so, um, man, the Gladiator is really impressive. It's not, it's, you guys have both had more time with it, but. I haven't. It's not. It's it's not as super long as, in person as it uh, as it is in pictures. I thought you had you had been up close to it too. Well, soon, I, I, so. I've seen it up close at the auto shows, but I haven't driven it yet. Uh, yeah, so I drove yeah. it. They had it, so I didn't actually. I got there a little late because Boston traffic. Um, so <laughs> I I did not drive it, but um, that that's coming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was surprised that they're only offering it with the V6. That was interesting to me. And I also thought it was really interesting. It's this interesting mashup of um, Ram 1500 and Wrangler in, in terms of the frame. Uh, they, they were saying that the rear axle is basically a five-link setup 
that's got a lot more in common with the Ram than it does with the, the Wrangler and the Wrangler Unlimited. So that, to me, says that that frame actually does have a future as a midsize Ram pickup. So I thought that was interesting. Yes. And the, the Ram HDs are so classy. So good. They are. So good. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so uh, thank you. And anybody who works at Chrysler and who listens to the podcast or if you want to pass it along, like they, thank you for bringing them to, uh, to New England. Please bring more of your stuff. FCA is my favorite because I like them. They're nice people. <laughs> I'm going to completely declare my bias. <laughs> uh, so anyway, let's talk about what we're driving. And Rebecca, because it's been raining in New England for like <laughs> two months. Yes. <laughs> you had a Miata, because why not? Of course I did. Yes. So how is it? Is it, is it full of water? Was it the, the convertible or the, the RF? It was the RF, but it... Yeah, so it was the RF. So it did have the convertible top, though, but there's it didn't... There's different versions of it apparently. I mean, right. you, no, you I guess soft top versus RF. Yeah, it's no. It it was the it was the hard top, um, which I got to put down on Saturday for a short time. So <laughs> it's when when they delivered when they delivered the vehicle, I said to the guy, every time I have a Miata, it rains, and this time not only did it rain every day except Saturday. I ended up signing up for this class, this uh, Lean Six Sigma class that is in Manhattan. And I basically leave the house at, at by seven in the morning and I get back at seven at night. And I put almost no miles on this sweet ride, which was tragic. The miles I did put on it were so much fun so much fun it's just it's it's this purity of mobility that we don't always get to experience i mean the the six-speed manual transmission is so good it just provides this incredible amount of old style driving engagement you know that you just don't have with with cars today and and you know, the, a, a typical, especially, you know, whether it's a sedan or an SUV or whatever, like it just I felt so I felt so connected to the road and to my environment when I did have the top down. I and, you know, the short drive to the train station, it was just fun. I just felt cool. I felt like somebody that didn't have a care in the world. And I just loved it. I loved it. I hated, hated, hated to see it go. That's why I own a Miata. Why? Because it puts a smile on my face every time. Every time. Every time. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that really astounds me about the Miata is it, when it came out, it was this return to that elemental car. Because there wasn't really anything like it on the market in 89 or right. 90. I think 89. When it, it was 89. It, when the... the uh, this year at the Chicago Auto Show was the 30th anniversary of the original introduction of the Miata at the, the 89 oh, Chicago Show. That was yes. 30 years ago. Yeah. Isn't that Holy crazy? And, anyway. And did you meet the guy, Sam, as well? I couldn't remember. I can't think of his name, Bob name Hall? right now. Or, or the other guy, the... Um, the Japanese the, gentleman whose name I should um, remember because we've been... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I can't remember his name I, now either. I, I, Uh, There was a big crowd around him, and I didn't have a chance to talk to him. I I did uh, chat briefly with Bob Hall, uh, who was the 
uh, American product planner and uh, the twin brother of uh, Jim Hall, who currently works at GM. Right. And you and I both know Jim. I, uh, do you know Bob? Right. Jim has great stories. Oh, yes. <laughs> 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 so the fun thing, oh, yeah. so the fun thing, and, and I have to look it up because it's going to drive me crazy. And actually, I meant to do this um, uh, a while ago, so I apologize. Is that I did get a chance to talk to him, and it was just so much fun. And one of the things that he said was that when they were building it, when they were designing it, he really, it, it, you know, I said, did you, did you know you were designing an icon? And he said, no, we were just designing something we could afford to buy. Yeah, because, you know, by that, by that time in the late 80s, you know, but, you know, by the time they would have started that project in probably 85 or 86, you know, the last of the classic British roadsters were gone. You know, Triumph, right. the Triumph brand was gone. There were no more of, you know, Lotus wasn't building anything like that at the time. Uh, you know, the Elise, had, it was the original, uh, or rather the Elan was long since out of production. Um, I think MGs, you know, MG roadsters were, were gone by that point. So, yeah, I mean, there, there wasn't the only, anything like yeah, that. The only thing you could get that was that classic roadster was the Alpha. The Alpha was still yes, here until like right. 91 yeah, or 92. The Alpha, the Alpha Spider was, was still hanging in there for a while. But it was so, it was old and expensive. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, the Miata was... It was like this this MGB that you know the MGB left the US in what eighty, um, and, and so there was this period of time where we didn't have anything like that, and and so the Miata came out and it was about eighteen hundred pounds and it was fun and it it didn't leak, it didn't break, right. <laughs> it, it ran reliably, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it did uh, it did all that stuff that those cars did and it did it better, and it's still about eighteen hundred pounds and it doesn't leak and it doesn't break. And they've left some body roll in there so you can have a good time oh my gosh. Uh, without having to go too fast. So fun. And it's comfy. It's just, I mean, it's its a great car. It, and, it, you know, it's yeah. got a little more power now than before, but, you know, still, you know, still a really fabulous balance. Yeah, this one has the four-cylinder, the 2.0-liter four-cylinder, 181 horsepower. And then the price point, you know, it, it's... The base was 32. The one that I drove had, um, oh, you know, it had the Brembo with the black roof, which was oh, really yeah. cool. So that was really nice. Um, 38,000. It, it tops out at 38.3. So, you know, again, it's just for that, for the fun. Like, And there were just, there were small things that I really liked about it. The heated seats were super comfortable. The whole interior is focused on driving it's just it's just about the drive. And, you know, I would have liked to have had power seats only because it does sit really low and I'm really short. And so some of that, you know, came into play a little bit. But but even then I figured out the right seating position and it just it I just it was just fun. It was just fun. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you know, once you set the seats, they're done. Once you set them once, right? I mean, for, for us, yeah, because because it's not like you're ever going to let anybody else drive your Miata. Yeah. <laughs> no. Exactly. Right. There were a, there were there were sometimes though when I I felt like I was sitting really low and and some of the roads in my area are so curvy and they go up and down and there were times when I felt like I couldn't really see over the, the, the wheel. Yeah, so I guess that's my question is it's it's probably easy to say how much fun it is so like you expect that car to be fun you expect to love it so I, I don't know let's let's try to counterbalance that I guess it was like sort of what are what are what are some of the downsides even just compared to 
Um, other other convertibles or sporty cars. Well, you know, I'm trying to think yeah. about what it what it computes. So I'll tell you, you, you don't have so any cargo it, space. Right. There's no cargo space. But but I will tell you one thing though. Um, so coming home, I was coming home very late one night, and a deer ran out almost directly in front of me. Or you just go under it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it was. It, it was whites of the eyes kind of thing. And fortunately, yeah. I was able, you know, slam, I wasn't going fast. I slammed on my brakes. But I thought, man, that deer probably weighs a thousand pounds, you know. I mean, it just, if that had nah, happened. That's, that's probably about a two, you know, yeah. 150 to 200 Wait, pounds. Probably tops, about, but. I would say 200 pounds. But. I, you know what? I don't want to hit it. it exactly. Yeah. No. It would do a lot of damage. You know, and I also did, I did avoid the highway uh, because not, not the Merritt Parkway, which is a super fun road to, to go on a two lane road, but you know, route 95 was, was not going to be any fun uh, in, in the rain also. So, you know, there, I mean, there's, there's puddles that are, that are significant based on just the kind of rain that we had. So there are some downsides to it. I could never have it as my only vehicle. The, um, you know, the lack of, of cargo, although I will say that I, I had to do some shopping. I had to do, I did some grocery shopping and the trunk is pretty good. It's, it's pretty deep. So I was pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah. And you know, we're in this age where they'll deliver anything. <laughs> that, that is an excellent point. <laughs> Very true. You know, that's, that's, why, that's why you have Grubhub and Postmates yeah. and you know, Instacart and all these other Also, but, but hilariously, too, and I, I don't know if they still make it, but I've seen Miatas with trailer hitches. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. No, it, it, it can be done. But yeah, it, it was delightful. So what did you guys drive? Yeah, uh, Sam, you're you're riding in the lap of luxury this week. Well, we'll 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 come back to uh, to what I was driving yesterday. Um, you know, today I'm not driving anything because I'm stuck in Santa Clara for a conference uh, for another day. But, oh, I'm stuck uh, in but, California. Well, it's raining Darn. here too, actually. That's it was, true. It was yeah, beautiful it yesterday, but we'll we'll get back to that. Uh, but uh, before I left uh, before I left Michigan, I was driving the Chevy Blazer. Uh, the Blazer RS, to be specific, with all-wheel drive. Oh, that's not exactly the lap of luxury, but that's an interesting car because, it's, uh, like, interesting is a very good word for it. Yeah, yeah. There's controversy about it. So, where where do you come down on it? Are you impressed or not impressed? Or do you care? Is it much ado about nothing? Or I, I have I have a very hard time wrapping my head around fifty-two thousand dollars for that vehicle. Wait, what? Which particular model it, it of the RS. is it? It, the RS. Yeah, with all-wheel drive. You know, so it had, you know, and it had the driver assist package and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. I mean, it was pretty well loaded. You know, it had heated yeah, seats. Yeah, I guess. Heated and cooled seats and heated steering wheel and uh, everything else, you know. But still, you know, I guess this, this is, this is a, a recurring problem that, you know, in our conversations is vehicles just getting too damned expensive. Um, yeah, I mean, RS must stand for really expensive. I mean, like, yeah. that's just crazy well, even, for, even, even for the a Blazer. Even the Blazer, you know, the, the, the Blazer L, you know, the cheapest version with the 2.5-liter four-cylinder and front-wheel drive, you know, starts at $30,000, you know, and then things go up from there. Um, you know, wow. it's, pr- price aside, you know, this is an interesting vehicle. Um, you know, it's... 
it's uh, a mid-sizer, you know, so it's bigger than an Equinox, smaller than a Traverse. You know, I think it's, I think it's maybe the same wheelbase length as the uh, uh, the GMC Acadia, and it's built off the the Lambda platform, you know, that is used by the Acadia and Buick Enclave and the uh, uh, the uh, Chevy Traverse. Cadillac, right? So you know, it's uh, you know, it, it, think of it, you know, as kind of Chevy's uh, version of what Honda did with the Passport. You know, create a you know a little bit smaller midsize two row crossover from their big three row crossover, and but you know what they what Chevrolet has done that's different is that you know the design of this thing is very different from any other GM crossover. Um, you know, there's a fair bit of Camaro inspiration in the design. Um, you know, it's got a high belt line. Um, you know, relatively mediocre visibility out the back. Uh, not as bad as the Camaro. <laughs> Uh, you know, it kind of the, the towards the C pillar, it sweeps up and away. Uh, you know, so it's tr trying to give it a sportier look. You know, the the front end is you know you get these very slim horizontal daytime running lamps, and then the larger uh, headlamps down below. Um, you know, which is an, an interesting look. And I, I think I think my issue with the design is that there are certain elements of the the design that that work pretty well in isolation, but I'm not sure the whole thing works as, as a unit. You know, So the front end by itself looks kind of interesting, looks kind of good. The back end, you know, like the rear three-quarter view, it's got this nice wide athletic stance to it. Um, I guess the, the middle part is the part that I'm not thrilled about. <laughs> Where they stitch the two ends together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, you know, I, driving it. Oh. I'm also not pleased with my middle. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> which, that, that which one did you which one yeah. did you have because the one that i the, R uh, the launch when i went on the launch the one that i had the rs and mine as tested was forty one thousand. yeah well the the rs does start at well it's 40 41 8 is the starting price for yeah. the rs uh, right but as as has become all too common with gm vehicles of late uh, you can you know they, they've they've Followed the German uh, premium brand philosophy of you, know, you can really crank up the price with uh, injudicious use of the options list. Uh, but see, that's okay when you're a German brand like BMW or Mercedes. When you are uh, an American brand like Chevy, where buyers expect value, like you're going to wind up with this thing just sitting there on the lot, and you're going to have to put you know, seven thousand yeah. dollars on the hood of it just to get it moved off to a buyer. And and that four, <laughs> and that forty two thousand dollar base price is for front wheel drive. If you want all wheel drive, you know, then it adds another couple of grand to that. Uh, right. It, that that cranks it up. Now you're starting it at forty four seven. You know, so twenty five hundred dollars more or twenty seven hundred dollars more to, to go all wheel drive. And then, you know, the one I had had the optional uh, larger black wheels, black alloy wheels, and it had all the driver assists and all the other, pretty much all the other options on this thing. So, you know, it, it starts to add up really fast. It, it was in the, the red hot um, mm, with the, mm -hmm. uh, the black, uh, black perforated wings. leather interior, um, the, the seats and, uh, you know, the enhanced convenience and driver confidence package. You know, there was another $3,600 that gets you the the eight-inch screen with navigation and the rear camera mirror system, which I, I, I really like the rear camera mirror system, especially on a vehicle like this with limited rear For visibility. Sure. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, the Sun and Wheels package you know, is another $2,500 <laughs> with the 21-inch black wheels and, uh, and all-season tires. You know, and, and it's just, it's, it, it just keeps adding up, you know, and it ended up about $52,000. Wow, because the, um, the other one I had, I drove a few weeks ago, I had the Premier all-wheel drive, and that topped out at 46. That actually had no options to it, and then the destination charge is 11.95. So that one, man, I mean, that's just incredible. That was not the RS version, though, which they do add some some cosmetic things to. Yeah. yeah, but what are they? What are they hoping for? Well, this is. With, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm. I just yeah. I, 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 carry on. I think <laughs> you know. I think they're trying to attract, you know, uh, a younger buyer who's interested in you know something that's sporty looking. You know, kind of has a, a sporty attitude to it, but wants a wants a utility. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't want a Camaro. You know, basically right. somebody that that wants the kind of Camaro DNA. But not necessarily, you know. But doesn't want a coupe, you know. Wants something. But that's don't those have... people just don't those people just buy the the fancy Silverado that's like the Camaro version <laughs> of the Silverado? No, this yeah, is but... this. I'm I'm one of these buyers, so it's for smaller households. It's for singles. It's for people that that have a a smaller lifestyle, if you will. But the, but but it's but not. We a, want it's utility. Not... But we still yeah, want I was plenty say. of utility because because this and I found the exact same thing with the passport, which actually just got delivered today. And I, I went on that launch as well. But this is a vehicle that is it for me. It kind of hits that sweet spot where if I have friends over, if I if I'm going to a store and I'm you know buying, I don't know if I'm going to Home Depot and buying a bunch of plants or if but it's not that it's big enough for that but it's not so big that when i go to the train station or if i'm on, on a commute you know i'm taking a commute or something that i don't feel like i'm i'm slogging around with the big car it just kind of hits that sweet spot really I, I i will have to reserve some judgment until i get a chance to to really like sniff around one and drive one but like it strikes me as one of those vehicles that's bigger on the outside than it turns out to be on the inside, and so its utility is that's, limited because it's actually you're paying. No, this this one is actually uh, pretty pretty well sized inside as well. I mean, there's you know there's plenty, oh well that's good. There's plenty of room in the second row seat because you know one thing they didn't do is they didn't try to squeeze in a, a you know a, a, a cosmetic third row seat. Right. You know, so it's stri- it's strictly a five seater, and you know it's got a good amount of cargo space in the back. Uh, you know, very, you know, very healthy cargo area, plenty of legroom and headroom in the back. You know, the, because of the design, it does have a very high belt line. You know, so you do have that kind of sitting in a bathtub feel of the Camaro, yeah. except you're still sitting. And maybe up, that's you're what, sitting up higher, but yeah. still sitting in a bathtub. So you're in an elevated mm-hmm. bathtub. And that's maybe that's what gives me the impression that it's it's going to be one of those you know typical space inefficient things. Is just because it has that belt line. It looks chunky from the outside. Yeah, it, so does, it does. It, it does chunky. look that way. But it's it's actually you know it's it's quite you know um, reasonably well. It's well packaged inside. So that's that's not well, an issue. Good for them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, go ahead. Rebecca. No, go ahead, Sam. Please. Uh, you know it, it. That Camaro theme also continues to the inside with the big round. The circular vents, and you know they, they copied the thing that the Camaro, the current Camaro has, um, with the the two vents in the center, 
uh, you know, at the bottom of the center stack, uh, what the Camaro and, and this one have is the, the temperature controls are actually the, the bezel around these, the two central uh, vents. So you reach down and just twist the bezel around the vent to adjust the temperature. So rather than having a separate knob, it's, it's literally integrated with the vent. Uh, which is, you know, I think it's it's well oh, see, executed. See, that's clever. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah, easy I, to see, use. It's you know, I mean, you can do it, but you don't have to look at it. You can do it by feel, uh, unlike a touchscreen, uh, you know, which is always the wrong answer in a car. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, we've we'll made it all the way there, where now now well. touchscreens are not never acceptable. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm um, with you. I'm, I'm with and, you. Yeah, um, and, and you know, this one did have you know all the driver assist stuff it had you know adaptive cruise control and, and lane keeping assist and uh, blind spot monitoring and all, all that other stuff and of course the, the camera mirror which is uh, an interesting touch if you if you've never tried it before uh, you know what this does um, they're using the, the rear camera uh, it gives you an unobstructed and it the the entire mirror assembly uh, there's also a, a standard mirror there, so when you flip it down, like you know, in the old days, you you could flip your mirror up and down, and you know, one side, you know, in one position, it would be, um, you know, coated uh, for nighttime driving. So if, you know, when there's headlights behind you, it it uh, it dims that. Uh, now instead of that, you know, when you flip the mirror, it goes from a conventional mirror to turning on the the LCD that's overlaid on it, and then you get the view from the camera. Uh, looking out the back, so it's unobstructed by the rear seat headrests and the pillars and everything else. You have a perfectly clear view. You can also uh, you can adjust the brightness of that display and also adjust the zoom factor. Uh, so if you want to see a wider angle view, you can get a wider angle view or get it closer to a natural view, similar to what you would get from the standard mirror. Yeah, I've tried it in something. I forget which GM car I had it in. I the it confused me. Like I'd have to spend more time with it. Um, it does take a little getting of, used to relative to a yeah. mirror, but but I think it, it it you know as as we get vehicles that have these severely obstructed rear views, especially SUVs and crossovers that are sitting up high and you know uh, often have a very obstructed view at the back. I I think that this is a a great alternative. You know that gives you better situational awareness of what's behind you. Yeah, I thought it, I thought they yeah. were pretty cool. I, I liked the yeah. GM the, the mirror. It it does take a minute, but but overall, I thought it was pretty cool. Well, you know, and what impresses me, I didn't realize you can you can get a Blazer with up to forty five hundred pounds of towing capacity too, which is uh, it's better mm -hmm. than I expected. So. Yeah, and you know the the three point six liter V six, you know, is a is a great engine. You know, it's all it's always been a really good engine for GM. You know, things you know it's it's reasonably quick. Um, you know, it's not going to challenge you know Porsche Cayennes and things like that, but it's got plenty of performance. Um, and you know the nine-speed automatic transmission is is a is a reasonably smooth shifter, so it's a, it's a good powertrain. Uh, you know it's the, the the RS you know is a little bit stiffer than I guess the other versions of the Blazer, but it's not you know it's not back pounding. You know it's it, it's it's a it's a good combination, I think. I just uh, I predict they're going to have trouble moving too many fifty-two thousand. Yeah, well blazers. that's well, again you know that's that's the problem is the price point. Yeah, and you know, to your point, I was just looking. I I am um, just recently had the Lexus NX three hundred, which is in some ways comparable. It's a little bit smaller, but that's yeah, quite a bit smaller than this thing. Well, but that goes for forty nine, 
And, you know, the thing is that when you think about just the um, residual value alone, the Lexus is going to hold up, I think, more than, oh, yeah. the, you know, the Chevy's going to drop like a stone. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the price, I mean, that 50 and changes is that that's that's high for sure. Yeah, I do think that that's that's a rare buyer that's going to buy the RS and then option the crap out of it. But like you know that. what, though? But it looks great, though. I mean, I prefer does, the yeah. RS the rs version because i know when they when they dropped off uh the one that i had the all-wheel drive premium i was like oh yeah you know the rs really is very sharp looking so and, but, you yeah. know uh, the the red the combination of the red and the black you know the, yeah. most of the body's red and you've got the um the the black wheels and the black uh rockers uh you know so it it, it is a, it is a pretty good color combination i, I yeah. like that a lot it looks great. Um, and, I think it looks well, great on the and, road. And, the, you know, the interior of this thing, you know, compared, you know, we talked uh, a week or so ago about the the Ranger. You know, mm. I was complaining about how the, the, the interior of the Ranger felt cheap, you know, at $42,000 for the Lariat. Um, you know, this one is, is definitely much better than that. You know, uh, is it $52,000 good? Eh, may, maybe. But it's, it's definitely, you know, definitely a lot better than the, uh, than the Ranger was. Well, you know, it's funny you should mention the Ranger <laughs> because that's what I drove last week um, was a Ranger Lariat FX4. Um, and, you know, in, in, in some ways, I, I think it has the one of the better Ford truck interiors, which is damning with faint praise because Ford truck interiors aren't that good. Um, but it's mostly because the materials like on the upper door panels and the dashboard are pretty nice, but everything else is not really all that nice. Like you said. Uh, um, so it's good that the blazer actually has an interior that somewhat more lives up to its price. I think that's, that that's an area where a lot of uh, car makers, you know, I consistently see Toyota and Ford and uh, the GMs that I have managed to get into lately they all sort of fall down on that job. Uh, they're getting better in their own respects, but um, yeah, the the Ranger was uh, it was it was an interesting thing to be in, especially in light of your your commentary about it. It was it really made me um, stop and and kind of evaluate uh, the truck. Um, it and it was also interesting driving it after having checked out the Gladiator. Uh, the, the like the very same day um it, i like it a lot i like it a lot more than i thought i would um like it, in terms of the compact pickups does the ranger Mid-size. get near the top of your your list for for you guys i think powertrain yes pa- powertrain yes you know kind of the overall package uh, i would say yes um i was actually just in another ranger this morning had breakfast with somebody and gave me a ride back to the hotel here in his Ranger, uh, and and he's got uh, the crew cab, and I think the crew cab is a, a a much better package. Although you know it's a shorter bed length, so if you need a longer bed, you know the the did you have the crew cab or the uh, the super crew, the super cab? I had the crew cab. Okay, and the crew cab is not all that big. The back seat that was one of my complaints is that there's there's not a ton of legroom back there. Yeah, well, you should try the super, the crew ca- the the other cab, the extended cab. Yeah, <laughs> that's one where you just fold the seats up, right, and you just yeah. use the storage. Um, and the the you know the but the the shorter five foot bed is is still pretty useful. 
if you're going to use it as a truck. Um, you know, I think for this class of truck, really, my top choice is always going to be the Ridgeline because for me, I, I'm coming at it with like, you know, the compact truck is the weekend, more so the weekend guy who's using it for those, you know, around the home tasks. But, or, the, you know, something like the Ranger or the Colorado, uh, you know, is while, you know, I, I agree that, you know, for the person who's mainly going to use it as a daily driver and occasionally haul some stuff, the Ridgeline may be a better choice. The, the, uh, did I say Ridgeline? I meant, yeah, Ridgeline. Yeah. The, the Ranger, you know, something like the Ranger is definitely more capable. Um, you know, it's got a lot more towing capability. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. You know, and you know, it, certainly, you know, it's, it's powerful. Uh, you know, it's got better brakes than the Ridgeline. Um, you know, the Ridgeline, you know, certainly a lot more comfortable to drive when it's unloaded. Uh, you know, the ride quality is a lot better when it's unloaded. Although, you know, if you're going to be hauling heavy stuff, you know, the, when you, when you load up the bed of a Ranger, you know, it really settles down much better, but that's true. Well, so this is the, this is the thing. Like if you're going to use it as that occasional truck user and you just want to have the, the capability, but you're going to generally use it as a commuter car. I, you're you're kind of doing a disservice because all of the things you said are absolutely true. It actually has a pretty impressive tow rating of like 7,400 pounds, mm-hmm. which is just, that's pretty good. The powertrain is fantastic. Uh, the 10 speed auto and the 2.3 liter EcoBoost are great. Uh, it, it, you know, and it, it returns about 20, 20.8 or 21 miles per gallon. So I wasn't I wasn't offended by that. I thought that was pretty good fuel economy for for what it is. Um, you know, it, it it was quiet. It was pretty well composed on the road. Uh, I, I did notice that it, it feels like it's tuned to be a truck that wants to feel bigger than it is. You know, and I, I've I've picked up that some some reviews where they they feel like it's actually under damped and and it really comes out when you have it off road where it's capable, but it's sort of bounces you around the cabin where other trucks sort of soak that stuff up. Um, I, I didn't have a chance to really put that to the test. It felt fine on the road and pretty much whatever I wanted to throw at it. So, uh, you know, as a package, I think it's, it's quite good. It, it, there are places where you get the impression like, Oh, this is a, a rest of the world truck that they cleaned <laughs> up and brought here. Yeah, very market. much so. Um, but I, I don't think that's bad. I do. I like some of that truckiness in its demeanor uh, because that's that's what it's supposed to be, you know. So it, it is a really. Uh, it, I thought it had a lot of charm to it, um, and I can see, I can see the value. It's very comfortable. Uh, the the price is, you know, it climbs up there. It was this one was like forty. I want to say forty four, forty five. So, it, it, but it had again, it's the FX four. It was the Lariat. It had a bunch of other, you know, packages on it. So there's there's really nowhere else to go with options. It's a pretty full boat. So yeah, when you when you get all the stuff, when you check all the boxes, it's going to cost you money. <laughs> um, you can get an XL for like twenty four in two-wheel drive regular cab, like the fleet model. Yeah, with the steel is, wheels and everything, you know. That. Yeah, which A, I think it looks fantastic like that. Yeah. And, and, and B, like the the fleets and the actual like truck buyers that buy trucks to use them as work vehicles, that's the one they're going to buy and it's a really well-suited truck for that, you know. So 
I, I think it's, you know, even the XLT starts at twenty nine, or yeah. you know, twenty nine nine. You know, thirty thirty thousand. And I think for most customers that want something like a Ranger, I would say the XLT is a better choice. You know, as I said last time, uh, you know, because I think that the interior, you know, at thirty thousand dollars, you know, that interior, you know, makes more sense. You know, when you get above forty thousand dollars, it just it feels cheap. Yeah, you know, it's it's fine. Um, and uh, at that $30,000 price level, and even at like 40 something, we're going to complain about it. I don't know that a buyer is going to complain about it. I mean, you've, you've seen what they get away with in the F series. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't know that it's really that much of an issue, but uh, I, I feel for me, you know, given what we can see going on in Ram where the interiors are just gorgeous for the money. Uh, everything else gets benchmarked against that because we, we see those. Um, and a Ford Ranger buyer, A, they don't have a choice at FCA yet other than the Gladiator, which is its own thing. Um, and, and B, I don't, I don't really know that they're going to care. But uh, I, was, I was impressed with how competitive the Ranger felt because I, I didn't expect it to, to feel sort of that much in the fight. Um, and, and yeah, if you if you do need a work truck, you need something with a little bit of capability and a little bit beef a bit of beefiness. Um, uh, it's it's got a, you know it's got a strong backbone and it can get to work and it, you know it looks good. It drives nice. I, I'm surprised how much I liked it. Cool. Good. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's let's hit some topics. And Sam. Um, you know, we can we can tee this up later on as well. But you actually, you attended a, a thing with Ford. Um, you got to you didn't get to drive the new Shelby's, but you got to be well, around them, I, which I, I thought was pretty. I cool. did not get to drive the GT five hundred, but they did. They brought us out to M one M one Concourse in Pontiac, um, which is uh, it's a facility in Pontiac, Michigan, north of Detroit, uh, with garages, you know, basically, a, you know, sort of a country club for uh, car collectors, you know, and they sell, you know, garages there of various sizes where you can store your cars and, you know, there's lofts in there. And some of these are, some of these garages are really decked out and there's some really expensive machinery there. Um, and, uh, you know, Ford borrowed one that's uh, owned by uh, the LaFontaine family that owns a bunch of dealerships in the Detroit area. Uh, for an event for the 2019 GT350, Shelby GT350, uh, which got some updates this year. Um, they had a couple of GT500s out there, parked out there, but they would not let us drive them, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they wanted to, to show us the, the updates to the GT350, which we've talked about before. You had one last year, I think. And, you know, it's... Yes, it, I adored that car. Yeah. Holy crap. The, you know, so this <laughs> this is the Mustang with the 5.2 liter flat plane crank V8. And that engine is just glorious. You know, it revs to 8,250 RPM redline. Um, and, you know, at M1 Concourse, they have a little 1.5 mile track um, that, uh, you know, owners of the garages can use. And they, they, they also, it also gets rented out for various events. Um, and, you know, it's a tight little course, 10-turn course, uh, with a variety of different kinds of corners. And uh, we got to do laps in the GT350. The, the big updates for this year, um, you know, they, it's got a new rear spoiler on the, the base model. Instead of the little lip spoiler they had before, it's got a larger spoiler, but it's got a couple of ducts underneath there to reduce the drag. So it generates more downforce, but still has 
less drag than before. Um, and there's an, uh, an optional handling pack that you can get for the GT350 um, that includes a gurney flap that you can bolt on the back of that. And they recommend not driving with the gurney flap all the time, just put it on when you're going to track days because it does, uh, it does add quite a bit more drag and you know, it'll cost you about two miles per gallon uh, in highway driving. But, um, you know, and then there's, it also, that package also has uh, adjustable strut tower mounts, uh, so you can dial in more camber if you want on the track. Um, but the, the other thing that changed is Michelin developed some new, um, a new tire formula for the Michelin uh, Pilot Sport Cup 2 tires that are on there. So that the they, you know, they're, they're, uh, they've got a, an FP molded into the sidewall of these, and these were custom developed for Ford Performance uh, to have more grip, but also a more progressive breakaway. You know, so tires, you know, one of the things about tires is, you know, when they start to lose traction, you know, there's, there's what's called a mu slip curve, and, you know, mu being the, the traction, the amount of friction between the tire and the road, and then the slip. And, you know, a lot of really high performance tires have, you know, the, the, the mu climbs up to a peak uh, you know, usually somewhere in the 10 to 15% slip range and then falls off. The, the way that curve falls off will give you a, an idea of how that tire is going to behave. If you have a really peaky, really sharp peak on that curve and, it, and the traction falls off once you get past that peak, then... Oh boy, that's fun. Um, <laughs> well, that's, that's one word that you could use, um, but not necessarily for, you know... You know, more novice, you know, or, or you're not really highly skilled drivers. You know, when it, when, with a tire like that, when it breaks away, it just snaps. You know, it's really hard to recover. And so these, this new uh, tire that they've developed, you know, has a different compound, different tread design, and even a different internal con construction from the, the standard Pilot Sport Cup, the Pilot Cup Sports. Uh, and so it, it breaks away more progressively. So basically what that means is as, as it starts to slide, you can feel it sliding and you can recover it more easily. And it's actually more fun to drive. And you know, one of the things, talking to um, Carl Widman, who's the chief engineer on Mustang, you know, uh, describing you know, kind of what they're trying to do differently you know, to separate the GT350 from the GT500, aside from the 500 obviously having a lot more power with its supercharged engine, you know, he said the 350 is designed to, to flatter the driver. Uh, you know, so somebody who wants to, you know, really go out and, and push it, but isn't necessarily a, a really highly skilled professional racer, you know, can go out and, and really push this and have a lot of fun with it without necessarily getting themselves into a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, when it starts to slide, yeah. they can get it back. And you could, we could feel that. You know, and so they use that to, to retune the suspension a little bit. Uh, to retune the ABS, you know, to uh, you know, open up its thresholds a little bit, to give you a little more slip, and you know, allow it, to, allow you to have a little more fun with it. And uh, it's, it was amazing on the track. That's awesome. I, yeah, I mean that that that's just one of those cars that even if you have an allegiance, you can appreciate it. That's just, I mean, there's not too many cars like that anymore especially and so let's all be glad that they make it and they continue to improve it and it's a it's a really good time and uh it, you know ford ford takes this stuff seriously and you had an interview 
um, which we'll tack on to the end of the episode here. But uh, you had an interview with Amy Morentic, and um, she's in charge of looking after the icons. Yeah, she, she's, so, she's head of uh, strategy and marketing for Ford, the Ford Icons Group, which is something new that they've created in the, in the past year, um, you know, in, in the time since they, uh, since they announced that they were going to discontinue most of their cars except for the Mustang. Um, and, you know, so they, they've, you know, traditionally, you know, they've had, you know, uh, groups that were in charge of cars at Ford, trucks, and SUVs. And now they have trucks, SUVs, and this group they're calling Icons. Um, and Amy, you know, t- explained, you know, kind of what the, the strategy is there. But, you know, for Icons, uh, the, you know, the, the grouping of vehicles under Icons includes the Mustang and the, Sh- the Shelby models, but it also includes the Raptor, the upcoming Bronco, and the, the new electric um, SUV that's coming uh, in early 2020. Uh, which we will be seeing which later may or this may year. not be called may or may not be called the Mach One. Uh, it will not be called the Mach One. Uh, okay. It's that that much we know. They've the Ford has said that, uh, but the rumor is that it will be called the Mach E for electric. Are you <laughs> so, f- seriously? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I, I, hey, you know what? The, the branding is branding is hard. Yeah. Branding is hard, and when you've got a bunch of heritage stuff like that, like it's also. Uh, you know, adds another wrinkle. Maki, it, it sounds like it sounds like a tuna fish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, that's uh, Maki. Sorry. It it should it, it should be very interesting. Um, so you know, uh, I chatted had a brief chat with Amy. Uh, she was at the uh, the GT three hundred and fifty event last week, and uh, you know, she kind of talked about what you know what what the strategy is around uh, around the icons group. So. I, I do it. like that. I do like the fact that they're doing that. I think it's, you know, we've talked before about being good stewards of a brand. And I like the fact that Ford is doing this. I think it's a it's a very clever way of embracing, acknowledging and and building on legacy and a strong foundation without always looking to the past you know or being stuck in the past so i think that's a really cool i like the fact they call it icons because these 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 names and these products at least the, the legacy of them they are iconic in our culture and I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. So I yeah, really, I really commend Ford. Especially Mustang and Bronco. Exactly. So I really commend yeah. Ford for doing that. I think that that's a, a really clever, modern way of building on their legacy. So well done. Well, yeah, and those those are the um, the true believers that are invested emotionally and you know if they buy them financially in uh, Ford if they're if they're buying into those icon vehicles. So. Those are people that um, you get a, a certain value out of them as, as brand ambassadors and just you know sure. loyal loyal fans. So uh, yeah, it's, it's good. You, you keep those folks happy and you give them something to talk about and give all of us also something to talk about. So uh, that's good. We'll we'll tack that on uh, to the end of the episode. But let's um, let's jump over across town to. <laughs> to GM who apparently is getting more money to put into cruise um, from, are they getting it from SoftBank who apparently is like investing uh, in everything everywhere? Yeah. Well, uh, SoftBank already put in a couple of billion dollars into cruise for, I think a 14% stake uh, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. And um, they're, 
between SoftBank, Honda, and GM, they're putting another $1.1 billion into, and also some additional new institutional investors. They're putting a total, another, total of another $1.1 billion into uh, GM Cruise, which is a separate business unit. You know, it's currently majority owned by GM. That, that may or may not continue to be the case in the future, but it, you know, it's, it's owned by GM. And this is their autonomous driving unit. Uh, you know, that's developing not only the, the automated driving system, but also, um, you know, the ride-hailing platform that will utilize this vehicle. So now Cruise is worth the, $19 billion? Yeah, the, the valuation based on this new investment, you know, they, so far investors have put in a total of $7.2 billion into Cruise. And, you know, based on that, you know, the the, the the total market cap of, of that company is nineteen billion dollars. Nineteen billion for, for so for a company that so far has um, exactly zero dollars of revenue, <laughs> and, right? And no no actual business. Well, and that's insane to me because GM's market cap the last time I checked is about fifty billion. Yeah, fifty three something like that. Uh, so that's starting to get a little out of whack, <laughs> in in my opinion. Um, Welcome to the world but, of technology company valuations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so what is GM like? What are they hoping to get out of this continued investment? You know, so, at a certain point, like it feels like they're just going to bleed cash out of investors. Well, I, I think I think what it you know what it is you know that they're they're building a, a business, a new kind of business here with GM Cruise. Um, but they, you know, as most other companies uh, that aren't called Tesla, um, you know, they also realize, <laughs> you know, this is going to take some time to build up to scale, you know, to get to significant volumes where they're generating real significant revenues and, and hopefully at some point actual profits. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, you know, there's still a lot of development work to do. There's a lot of investment that needs to be done. You know, if you're going to deploy an automated mobility service fleet in a city, you know, you've got to set up depots. You've got to set up, you know, the backend infrastructure, uh, data centers, and you know, there's all kinds of things that need to be done to to turn this into a, an actual working business. And you know, that's so like all that, all of that is non-car stuff. That's most yeah, that's most of it is non-car stuff. Um, yeah, know, I mean, it's it's the infrastructure that you need. Plus, you know, you've got, you know, they're growing the the staff of GM Cruise to to two thousand employees. Uh, you know, they're currently at about 1,200 and that, you know, those people need to be paid. So that, you know, the company, because of the way it's structured, you know, technically is a separate company from General Motors, um, the, you know, they, it, they need working capital. And so this is going to give them some additional working capital to, to keep them going until they can start to get to hopefully at some point, you know, positive cash flow and, and be able to fund themselves. When they deploy and or, you know plan to put an actual offering out there, uh, a I guess what's it going to be, and then b are they looking at being one of the companies that owns the fleet um, versus the, the model now where you you personally own the car and yeah, um, but you know you so, set your Tesla up to be a robo taxi. Yeah, so the, the initial like, the initial offering is going to be a ride hailing service, you know, like Uber or Lyft. Uh, but using these automated uh, GM uh, Chevy Bolts, uh, you know, and you know they want you know they will be adding other services to that you know so things like food deliveries, package deliveries, 
but the Bolt itself, you know, while it's well suited as a ride hailing vehicle because it's easy to get in and out of, you know, fairly tall, uh, good for urban environments because it's got a small footprint, you know, it's not it's not ideally suited, you know, to those other use cases which they're going to need, you know, in order to get the utilization up so they can, get, you know, try to get to profitability. Um, so, you know, GM and Honda are also collaborating on development of a next generation vehicle which is purpose designed for these applications and it'll be a multiple use case vehicle. Um, you know, so the initial offering will be the, primarily the ride hailing, maybe some food deliveries, um, and because they're working with DoorDash on that, uh, and then eventually other, other use cases. Um, and you know, the, the plan is for GM crews to own their fleet, to operate their own services. But you know, these investments are not Unfortunately, right now, they're not about making money. They are about keeping up and and getting prepared. Well, they're, they're about putting the pieces in place in order to try to make money, you know, eventually. Yeah, I mean, it's... But the, the initial investments have to be made now. So it's, yeah, it's oh, a yeah. bit of... It's a, it's a cost of doing business right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at it, you know, like Amazon in the 1990s, you know, they, they lost money because they were investing in the infrastructure that they needed, you know, first for fulfillment services, you know, for, you know, for fulfillment of the products that they were selling, you know, and then right. also building out other infrastructure like what, you know, what has become Amazon Web Services and, yeah, and AWS. eventually their, their logistics services. So they, you know, they, they invested in that infrastructure that, would enable them to ultimately become profitable. Right, right. And so that's unfortunately what GM has to do now. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah. And, and Ford is going to be doing the same thing, and sure. Volkswagen and Nissan and every other company that wants to get into this business. Right. And Waymo. I mean, Waymo is another example. They've been spending, you know, Google, Alphabet has been investing billions of dollars into Waymo over the last 10 years, you know, to do exactly the same kinds of things. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see an automaker just ignore this stuff. Just, Welcome. just yeah. don't look, don't invest in it. Mazda. Right. And right. And you know, and Subaru, you know why? And Subaru. And, <laughs> because I, I think, and, and as a, as a left turn, the automaker could say, you know what? drive less but those miles that you do drive enjoy them. make them really really good miles right and as boy as do we have plate, a product for you as the license plate frame on my miata says driving matters yeah absolutely and i think that that's a way where you know as an automaker you're you may feel like your days are numbered and they they could be um but you probably got another good five to seven years before you actually <laughs> to really before change your technology, right? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I don't disagree. You know, I think, uh, I mean, you know, obviously somebody has to make the investment to develop the technology. But, you know, it's gonna... So you can license it or you can buy them out of bankruptcy when they run out of investment. Well, yeah, I mean, that, and that may be what happens. Um, you know, but some somebody's got to make that investment, you know, to have something to buy out of bankruptcy. But... You know, not everybody needs to be doing it, uh, you know, and, you know, you can, uh, I think, you know, the idea of perhaps being a fast follower is not necessarily the most foolish idea in this space. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Totally agree. 
You know, because there's going to be a lot of things over the next five to seven years that uh, stuff that we're talking about now, that's just not going to pan out. And other things are just they're going to go a much different way and evolve in a much different way than than we could even imagine, because that's just how it works. So it's going to look very different. And all, a good amount of the things that are being worked on very hard now, they're, they're either not going to make it or they're just going to they're going to evolve differently. And so, you know, if you just hold back and just look, I mean, look at what happened in the 70s, right, with the, the, the Wankel engine. Like that was going to be the thing. <laughs> and everybody was working on it. And in the end of the day, we got one. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's 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 fine. It's a lovely little piece of engineering and we'll have a bunch of those little masterpieces around with autonomy and, and EVs and all of these different things. But some of them are just, you know, they're not going to be adopted for whatever reason. So they might be really cool stuff that just doesn't doesn't take off. So. And, and, you know, you, the the adoption is not going to be you know uniformly distributed when it happens. You know, we're not going to see fleets of you know automated uh, you know, robo taxis running around places like Chicago or Boston or Chicago or New York. You know, much- <laughs> you can't, let me tell you, you can't run anywhere in Boston. You could uh, you could run like yeah, with your feet, with but you can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what you know, what I'm getting at, you know, there, there's a lot of places where it's going to be a lot longer before you see those kinds of vehicles because of condition. You know, things like weather conditions, especially winter weather. Uh, you know, where they're just not going to be able to operate. Uh, viably, you're not going to be able to run a, a, a sustainable business in using those those kinds of technologies in those environments. You know, at least not year round. So, you know, we're going to see this stuff deploying in warm weather environments like Phoenix and like San Francisco and and Miami. You know, for many years before you start to see it in other places, and you're going to see a lot more of it in places like China. You know, where it's increasingly difficult to even get. A license plate, you know, to register a vehicle in places like Shanghai or you know Shanghai or Beijing, uh, because of the congestion and the air quality issues, uh, you know, and so the you know the Chinese government is pushing this technology a lot harder than, for example, here we are here in the U.S. Yeah, that's that's something else we have to consider, um, which we don't consider all that much. Is there is a lot of other and, markets and, and, and this technology is expensive and it's it's expensive yeah. to deploy and it's expensive to uh, to support and you know it the you know a, a new MIT study that just came out uh, recently you know took a look at the costs and you know it's not at all clear you know that this is necessarily going to be cheaper than human driven vehicles oh I, I think uh, for a long time it's not yeah. going uh, to be no, I, I agree um but it, you know, and some of that is yes. It it, it th- that's it's kind of the the argument against um, renewable energies versus you know like uh, natural gas or or coal or something like that, right? Like, oh, it's so so much more expensive to try these new technologies. Well, yeah, for a while, and then yeah, then eventually the prices down, so. as you scale it up, the price will come down. Yeah, um, and that that's what's going to happen. You know, same things happening with electrification and and with other uh, other technologies as well. Um, so let, let's let's you mentioned Mazda, and yeah. so we should we should pivot to Mazda because they're they're they are kind of doing that like yeah yeah whatever you have fun with your batteries we're gonna make a straight six. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the straight six is back. Yeah, uh, 
maybe i don't know is it official do you guys know uh yeah the in their uh in their fiscal year 2019 uh report you know they acknowledge that they're developing a new inline six cylinder um based on their sky active x technology which is just launching in europe um and uh and also uh, a six-cylinder diesel we'll see if the six-cylinder diesel actually makes it but um Certainly, the you know, the Sky Active X, you know, I think you know, has a lot of potential, and you know, Mazda is not the only one going back to inline sixes. Uh, Mercedes Benz, you know, launched a new um, inline six cylinder engine, a, a three liter inline six last year. Um, Jaguar is, is Jaguar Land Rover is mm-hmm. developing a new inline six based on their four cylinder architecture. Uh, BMW never left the inline six cylinder; they've you know they've been there all along. Uh, so you know th- this could be this could be really cool. I, inline sixes are fantastic engines because they are so smooth. So Rebecca, I have an idea. Okay. The the Miata. Yes. <laughs> has a four cylinder. So back in the day, there was the um, the Spitfire, mm-hmm. and then there was also the GT six. The GT six. Um, yeah. Right. It was also the TR6, yeah. Yeah, well, the TR6 was, yeah, but um, the TR6 was a little ben- better engineered. But the, the Triumph GT6 was basically uh, the a Spitfire, Spitfire coupe. Yeah. with a coupe, you I know, coupe body. I think my brother had one of those, actually. Yeah, and it had the six-cylinder was from, from the Herald in. or something. Yeah. Yeah, it was never designed for it, and it, it just <laughs> used to just... You know, it, would, it was too much, too much for the the rest of the components. That so they didn't really like it. But man, that was just a cool car. So they could make a a, a new version of that, an RF with a six, inline six, and I'm sure it would be better engineered than the Triumph. Well, you know, one could argue that with this move to mobility, that the cars that are made are things like. A triumph with a with a straight six stuffed inside of it, you know, because the cars that that people will be the, the few cars that are going to remain are going to be these fabulous exotic special cars. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Right? Like you know, uh, well, it's it's funny when you think. Okay, think about horses, right? Horses exactly. are a luxury thing exactly. now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so okay, well, that's fine. You know, don't 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 give up on the human driven car yet. And, you know. <laughs> They are going to represent the vast majority of transportation for at least the next 15, 20 years. Hey, look, we're, we're putting 90 million of these cars on the road every year. New ones. Are we that many? Globally. Sales. 90 million cars well, globally? Yeah. That's how many? Yeah, oh, it's sales. More, it's more, yeah, is more it, is it that. harder yeah. than that now? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's about 91 or 92 now. Yeah. Um, Where do they go? Right? China. <laughs> now, yeah, but... Like China, okay. Well, you know, so seven, 17 million a year just here in the U.S. You know, another and twenty 15, something in China, in, in Europe, and yeah, twenty tw- in uh, China. Twenty, twenty. Uh, it's more. I think it's like it's twenty four now. Twenty five, twenty six. Yeah. Yeah. I think they they got to twenty eight. I think in twenty seventeen. Now I don't know how many we net out, right? So how many are it's, taken off the road every year? Our our, our forecast from Navigant mm. is um, you know hitting over a hundred million annually by the mid-20s. I mean, that's insane. That's incredible. But how many are coming off the road? Do we know? Like, how many are we netting? Uh, far, far, far less than that. Yeah. 
You know, for sure, for yeah, sure. All we I need is a good economic downturn, and we'll yeah, take some money from somewhere and pay people <laughs> to throw the cars away. Yeah. Perfect, perfectly good cars. Yes. Throw them away. Yeah. But so that's the thing is that you know we and and because cars are lasting more than ever, that this this is why this move to full autonomous vehicles isn't realistic in the timelines that people are talking about because. Uh, because just the fact is that we put 90 million or 100 million new cars on the road every year and and they're going to last for more than a decade. So, you know, if not 15 In years, some cases, 30 years. years or more. Exactly. Like so, right. So, you know, at the minimum, I would say 10 years uh, that we even begin to start taking some of the cars off the road that we bought last year. So this is a, a horse will immediately get you an autonomous vehicle because they remember which way is home. (laughs) And there's plenty of stories of, you know, farm boys getting a little too much to drink one night and yet the horse gets you home. Um, So you can do that without having to buy a Tesla. They're all organic. Uh, You can even eat them when you're done with them. I just probably not something that people want to do. I'm just saying. Uh, They completely decompose. Um, Send your emails to Dan. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm just trying to, you know, complete the circle here. Um, But also, you know, this... Uh, the autonomous cars, the technology is really interesting and I'm sure it has applications, but a lot of the times it strikes me as a solution looking for a problem where, you know, the most immediate thing we can do for, for air quality, for resources, um, for congestion is just make it, make it more of what we do to, to, you know, aggressively reduce miles traveled, uh, and so walk more and the benefits of that are, are, you know, multifaceted, right? We don't get enough exercise. I sit most of the time at my, my job. So like, I, I strongly suggest getting a puppy. Uh, yeah, I have, I have one and, and he pouts because he doesn't get walked enough, but <laughs> See, it's, my, it's, my, it's, my, my puppy, you know, drags me out at least twice a day, you know, for a good, good brisk mile and a half walk. <laughs> You right, know, we, we do at least three miles a day, and uh, she, you know, she's in, in great shape, and I'm getting in better shape. Right, That's but awesome. you also so here's the other thing too: you work from home because you can because you have you, yeah. you have a knowledge job, so you don't necessarily need to be at the widget factory. Right. Um, so, you know that that is another way we can take cars off the road, it, like immediately. And so I'm just you know. Well, I'm, I think solar. I, I think solar is a really unrealized opportunity. I mean, I put solar on my solar panels on my house a couple of years ago and I absolutely love them. Did you, so did you buy or did you finance? So I financed them. I leased them. I kind of okay. wish I had bought them. I, uh, but at the same time, it's a, it's, you know, very low payment and such. And I'm pretty much self-sustaining. Yeah. I, oh, okay. Know. So that's, that's good. Right. And I really like that. And I do want to look at getting, a power pack or some kind of a battery uh, you know, wall system. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a really good idea if you have solar yeah. is to have some sort of uh, local uh, storage. Right. You need, storage. You, need, you need enough land where you can build a pond. <laughs> yeah. And so the solar runs the pump. 
that moves the energy. You got two ponds, right? An upper pond and a lower pond, and in between you have a turbine. And you know, when when the sun shines, it pumps water up to the upper pond, and then when it's dark, it just runs it through the turbine and makes power. And make, yeah, I, I see. I'm, I'm not I'm not getting solar because my house is surrounded by big, beautiful, mature trees that cast huge shadows on the house. Sam, you're supposed to cut them down and burn them. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is that while it's not for everybody. There is a, there's plenty of missed opportunity there for solar. Yeah, no, and, absolutely. Solar and, in my mind. And, you know, to, uh, you know, I mean, where I live in Michigan, you know, my my utility is DTE Energy, and they've been putting in solar installations all over Southeast Michigan. You yeah. Know, and there's 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 a, a couple of them within you know within ten miles of my house. Uh, so they're you know they're they're doing you know they are getting more and more renewable energy that they're feeding back into the grid, which is which is great. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of utilities give you the opportunity, you know, to, you know, to say, you know, prefer, you know, you, you want renewable, you know, you want solar or wind power. Um, and usually they charge you a little bit of a premium. It's not too much. It's usually a few dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that, you know, that encourages, that'll encourage the utility, you know, to, to invest more in that technology. Right. And then I'm also a big believer in a well-insulated house so that you use, yeah. so that you use yeah. less whatever heat, whatever heat and cooling. I mean, these are things I've done to my house that I just am amazed at not only how much money I'm saving, but just how much less uh, energy I'm using. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why I don't want to get rid of the trees because they dramatically reduce the solar load on my house in, in the summertime. You right. Know, I, you know, even when it's 90 degrees outside, you know, I, I can, it can be 75 degrees inside my house without, Turning on the air conditioning. Yeah. yeah. So here, here in Massachusetts, they actually the, the Department of um, Conservation and Recreation they they um, have a program in in certain towns. Uh, my town is one of them. They they will give you trees. They they came by oh. and they said yeah oh, that's great. Put trees that's awesome. in. <laughs> so they gave us three trees and they're like yeah they'll oh, grow to and, maturity and they'll, they'll and, and you know you know what else trees do? They absorb they carbon absorb dioxide so from yeah. the atmosphere. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's there's all of all of those ideas are. are you know, uh, they're on the table to reduce some of our, our energy consumption. And, you know, like we've got offshore wind going in and stuff too. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that where we can make those impacts now, uh, regardless of what the cars do, because we're also going to have to, you know, get the electrons into the batteries of the mm-hmm. EVs. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating time. And so with your well insulated house too, uh, you are you using heat pumps that they're like the mini splits, so you can. Um, b- that's that's one thing that because the houses are so much tighter, mm-hmm. you can use a much smaller um, uh, and low consumption system for for heating and cooling. And the the mini splits work in both directions, so they can AC and heat. I don't know if I have a mini split or not. I have a separate furnace and I have a separate oh, yeah. AC. Yeah, unit. yeah, no. So that's that's a more I, traditional setup. The mini splits are little little yeah. heat pump units, and they okay. they can absorb the heat from the they, they basically they move it. So it's like that's what an air right. conditioner does. An air conditioner moves the heat; it absorbs it from one place and spits it out somewhere else. And they so, they can run in both directions. So the other thing I put in were ceiling fans. Yeah, and so yeah, those are great too. My house is an open concept. Um, as built, it was built in '57, and it was built as an open concept. And even the the hallway upstairs is open to the downstairs. So, because we looked at doing zones, 
and it just yeah, you can have one zone <laughs> you, right so i have one zone so and you you run the ceiling fans in the winter to blow your heat back down right yeah exactly yeah, just so, reverse I, them. so they're reversed right so again i invested in new ceiling fans that are very efficient and i actually i think every once in a while in the summertime I put it on the second level of five because it blows out the house. <laughs> They're so powerful that I really only run them at one at the lowest speed. That's all I need to do. But then the heat will stay. I tend to keep my house a little cooler anyway, but this, the heat, it'll stay very comfortably between 68 and 69 with minimal running of the heat and that's in the dead of winter i mean it's really and in the summertime i can keep it at 74 and because my house is is high up on a hill and it's actually built into the side of a hill uh, i did have some trees around but most of them were just threatening the house and they and they were hollow and so i did have to do a lot of tree work when i bought in uh, 2012 but the the house also has an overhang so the so the sun is dispersed away from the window, so it doesn't get a lot of direct heat. So it's, you know, there again, I think pe I would just encourage people to look at your house situation. What can you do to make it more efficient, both inside and out and also get newer air conditioners yep. because the newer air conditioners are cheap. They're a 100 bucks and they don't need to run nearly as much and they run so much more efficiently. It's amazing. And get a horse. <laughs> get a horse and a dog and a, and a dog yeah get get a I menagerie that's fine I, I, well, and i have to include a cat because i do take, take my cat for walks you take and, your cat and then you can go out and drive your gt350 right i was gonna say let's let's, let's bring it around full circle of cars um okay uh I so uh, this has been the um uh the house bearings podcast <laughs> uh you know we did have a couple of questions um on twitter oh wait we got we still got something else oh e -tron. oh i didn't know i didn't know if you could talk about that or not yeah no, no it's, not, it's not under embargo no oh, yes definitely regale us with tales of the the e-tron because uh, the e-tron was it one of the ones with the disappointing range uh, yes uh well on paper, yeah. uh, the EPA rating is somewhat disappointing. You know, the official EPA rating came out a few weeks ago. We talked, I think, about it a little bit. Uh, 204 miles of range. Um, however, having driven it yesterday, uh, you know, we drove, uh, we had a drive program here in California. Uh, it went from, uh, from Napa up to Sacramento and then up to uh, Lake Tahoe. And, you know, the, the run from, um, from Napa to Sacramento was uh, through some some very pleasant uh, canyon roads, uh, California 128. And uh, we drove it at a fairly brisk pace. Uh, you know, we were not hyper-miling this thing. Uh, you know, so the the, e the Audi e-tron is, uh, you know, e-tron Quattro is a mid-sized SUV. Um, it's a little bit smaller than the, the Q8 and Q7. Um, you know, fair bit larger than the, uh, than the Q5. Uh, but quite, also quite a bit smaller than uh, at least in terms of overall size compared to uh, the Tesla Model X, um, but actually packaged better. So there's, there's actually more usable space in the e-tron than there is in the Model X. Um, and, you know, the, the, as I said, the, the 204 mile official range, you know, is on the disappointing side, uh, you know, for a vehicle with a 95 kilowatt hour battery, but Audi is not using the full capacity of the battery. Uh, you know, they're only using um, 88 uh, or 
kilowatts of that, so using 88% of the battery capacity, um, in, in part you know, to project the long, protect the longevity of the battery. Um, and you know, what, um, what that does, you know, the combination of you know, having some margin at, at both at the low end and the high end of the battery capacity, and also really having a really aggressive uh, thermal management, temperature management of the battery, uh, gives them some interesting advantages because the e-tron e is the first uh, car on the road to support 150 kilowatt hour, 150 kilowatt charging rates, uh, and for DC fast charging, and uh, Electrify America is the first charging network to support that. And you know, at our lunch stop, we stopped you know at an Electrify America station and, and recharged, and um, you know we we got some data from. Uh, from Audi, you know, on the, you know, one of the things about DC fast charging, you know, uh, in order to protect the battery, you know, one of the one of the things that can damage a battery is if you overcharge it or overheat it while you're charging, or just overheat it in general. And so, in order to protect the battery from from damage, uh, once you start, once you get past a certain state of charge of the battery, they start to ramp down the the charging power. And um, you know, so Tesla superchargers. You know, they're, the, te the current Tesla superchargers are rated at about 120 kilowatts. And, but once the battery gets to 50% charged, that's when it starts to taper it off. And, you know, by the time you get down to 100 kilowatts, you know, it's, or 100, you know, 100% charge, it's only giving you about 10 kilowatts, which is about, you know, not much more than what you get for home charging off a 240-volt circuit. Yep. Um, and what Audi's doing you know, as soon as you plug it in, it's getting 150 kilowatts, and it maintains that all the way up to 75% state of charge. <laughs> and then it, it starts ramping down, and, you know, we were watching ours as it was charging. Even at 98% um, state of charge, it was still cranking out 57 kilowatts. So that's, that. that's how they can say like you know you can get it you can basically charge for 10 minutes and put about 50 55 miles of range back in the battery um be yeah. because it does it'll charge that aggressively and it, so their thermal management must be also equally aggressive right the to make sure yeah so it. there's a there's a cooling circuit that spans the entire underside of the battery so it's you know and there's a cooling pump you know so it's running coolant through there keeping the temperature within its optimal range and um, you know, even all the way up, you know, to full charge. And because you've got that extra margin, even as you're approaching a hundred percent, you know, that hundred percent is a hundred percent of the usable range. But it's you know, when it's at a hundred percent, it's still the battery's still not a hundred percent charged because you've got some extra margin at the top end there that it's not using. So that's why they're able to all the way up to the max that you can use. They can still keep charging at a higher rate. You know, you know, for example, the Nissan Leaf only support or the, the regular leaf only supports 50 kilowatt charging maximum and you know this is still doing 50 kilowatts when it, even when it's 100% charge and you know recently Tesla announced their version 3 superchargers which they claim will go to 250 kilowatts yeah um, however that one the uh, you know they, they showed the the charging profile for that you know based on the data that, that Tesla has released and um, at you know from zero percent charge, you know it jumps up to two hundred and fifty kilowatts, but it only stays at two hundred and fifty kilowatts until about fifteen percent charge, and then it starts ramping down. See, so like they're gonna have to come up with a 
uh, well, maybe there already exists sort of a, a, a common or like standardized way to give these kind of measurements, you know, like, like, like something like we're going to give you the peak charging rate and then the RMS charging rates. <laughs> you have like, you know, the, yeah, I mean, maybe the average, I mean, that might be a little too complicated, but you know, I think, you know, talking about, you know, what, you know, what Audi's doing is, you know, they're talking in terms of, you know, how many miles per minute you can get, you know, or miles per hour, or, you know, the thing that most, most companies talk about is the time to get from zero to 80% charge. Yep. Um, and, you know, in the case of Audi, you know, 80% from zero, from a fully discharged battery, you can get to 80% in under 30 minutes. And then you can get to 100% in under an hour. Uh, so even though it's you know it's got less overall range, it's not quite as efficient as the Teslas. Uh, it uh, it will you know it, you can recharge it faster, and because because it maintains that peak charging power longer to a higher state of charge, you know you you know if if you're if you're ramping down sooner, you might be inclined to discharge the battery more, you know to get it to a lower state of charge. So you spend more time in that at that peak power range, you know, instead of at, you know, low charging power. This one, you know, you don't even really have to think about it. You can just charge it whenever you want and still have near that peak power. And even at, you know, near full charge, you're still charging a lot faster than most other cars. I think though, overall, I mean, I drove the vehicle as well a few months ago. It's such a fantastic vehicle. Well, oh, yeah. What's, uh, right. I think what strikes me is how normal it is. You know, and well, and that's yes. that's the that's the key thing that you know Audi talks about. You know, in this thing, you know, even last September when they had their reveal event here in San Francisco, you know, uh, talking to the Audi people then, you know, uh, said, you know, I asked them, you know, how, do you see this as a as a competitor to the Model X? Because I mean, that's that's the obvious, you know, competitive set is the Model X. You know, uh, and they said, no, not really. You know what? You know they're not trying to target Tesla customers with the e-tron Quattro. They are targeting Audi customers, people that want an Audi. And you know this thing has all the attributes of an Audi. You know, nice, great exterior design, really nice interior, great materials and fit and finish. Um, you know, great driving dynamics. And you know they they want a car or you know a, a utility for. Customers that want an Audi, but want to be electric, and yeah. so you know that has fed into a number of things about the way it behaves. Like for example, they don't really emphasize the the high regen. You know, the, the default regen you know is more like what a conventional internal combustion engine does. Uh, you can choose a higher regen rate, but you can't really get into a mode where you're doing one pedal driving like you can with some other EVs, because they. They're basically trying to make it behave as much like a conventional vehicle as possible. Whether that strategy will work or not, we'll see. But uh, you know, I think you know, for based on what they have said that they want to do, you know, uh, I think they've succeeded at that. Um, you know, and we'll see if the if the market responds to that. Uh, you know, this is you know, for its size, this is actually a fairly heavy vehicle. I mean, it's a 1,500-pound battery pack in there, and the the vehicle itself weighs 5,700 pounds. <laughs> so this is this is a very heavy vehicle. But driving it through those canyon roads, because all that weight is in the bottom, yeah. it actually, it doesn't feel, I mean, you know, it feels more like 
what you would expect, you know, a 4,000 to 4,500 pound vehicle. Right, it weigh. drives like a, yeah. a heavy vehicle, but it's a really but it's, but it's heavy surpri- vehicle. <laughs> but it's, it's surprisingly nimble. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, it, it really doesn't feel nearly as heavy as it is. I, I'm impressed, yeah. too, that um, they, talk, they, they promote towing with this thing. They, mm-hmm. they do. We drove, well, the, we drove in the sand. We were, I was in Abu Dhabi with it. And we yeah, drove off-road through the sand. Is really good, too. And the off-road was fantastic. I wish I had actually, I wish they called it the Q6E. Yeah. Yeah. I really would that, have liked them to have to just or have even a normal Q6 name. E-tron. Yeah. Exactly. I just I think that I think it's so good and it's so normal that it doesn't it, it deserves just a regular name. Yeah, and I think you know going forward, you know, I think I think this is you know their naming strategy for this one is kind of going to be a one-time thing, kind of like you know. The original Quattro, the Ur Quattro, back in the 1980s, mm-hmm. was just the Quattro Coupe. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know? And then later, Quattro became an adjective that they added on to other models mm. that had all-wheel drive. Uh, you know, this is you know the e-tron Quattro. You know, the next one that's coming at the end of the year is the e-tron Sportback. Yes, which uh, is you know, gorgeous. And then, and then going forward, you know, I think we're just going to see the e-tron. You know, being a descriptor added on to whatever the model name is, uh, you, know, you know, and uh, that's what they talked about. Um, you know, oh, the, good. The one thing, the the one thing that has changed uh, with this one, um, you know, from pre- existing Audis, is the the uh, the infotainment system, the HMI, in this one. They have gotten. It doesn't have the um, the central MMI control knob. It's got. Uh, it's just a touchscreen, um, and it's a little bit different from most touchscreens because you actually have to press a little harder on the screen. Uh, it's not a moving screen, but you have to press a little harder, and there is haptic feedback behind it. So when you press on it, it feel, it's kind of like a you know current MacBook touchpads. Um, you know, so you press on it, and you'll feel what what feels like a click. Uh, so there's a haptic feedback behind it. And it does take a little getting used to. I mean, most touchscreens, you just tap on it uh, and it responds. This one, you do actually have to press on it for it to respond. And I'm not sure I, I like it. Yeah, it took, it took a, little, a little more getting used to. But I, I, I think overall, though, it's just it's a really, really good example of how normal an, an electric vehicle can be and you know they got a lot of flack for the range and i think you know our twitter followers will know this uh, but i said on twitter i will trade 30 or 40 miles of range for a stable dealer network and service network <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. well and and even even to the range question you know i'm i'm pretty convinced now that audi was sandbagging on the range mm. um because you know the you know, if you look at the the EPA ratings, you know it's it's 204 miles. It's rated at 46 kilowatt hours per hundred miles of energy consumption. Uh, on the first leg of our trip yesterday, you know it's about 75 miles from uh, Napa to, to Sacramento, um, and you know that it was pretty aggressive driving. Uh, you know right. we were we were not hypermiling this thing, and you know we got 45 
kilowatt hours per 100 miles. So we did a little bit better, not much, but given the way we were driving, it was, it was actually pretty impressive. We did better than the EPA uh, efficiency rating. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think if you drove it, you know, more normally, um, you would probably get sufficiently, significantly better. And I, I suspect that in typical driving, you could probably achieve, you know, t without too much difficulty, 230, 240 miles of range out of this thing. So they initially had told us that, that they, the initial range was 259 uh, 250 miles per charge is what I had written down. That that was based. That's based on the the WLTP drive okay. cycle. The, that's the okay. European drive right. cycle, which is right. yes. a little more um, optimistic than and, the U.S. drive cycle. And we drove the European spec because then in the article I wrote, then it it continues to talk about um, that the U.S. would deliver 200 210 miles was what they were telling us back in December. So that was right in the range. And again, I just, I think that people need to understand that um, I, th I do think they underestimated a little bit, but you're going to have, a, I think you're going to have a very different ownership experience having an Audi versus the Tesla and the, yeah. and the usability. The Model X, those Falcon wing doors are ridiculous. <laughs> and so this is a well, very, yeah, you know, it's what, just a very normal of, car. One, one of the standard features on the e-tron e is roof rails. So you yes. can put, put a bike rack on there on the roof like you do right, on an SUV. Right. Exactly. You know, um, and, and the doors, you know, they always work. They, they open work. when you want them to and they close when you want them well, to. Well, yeah, but okay. So I, I, I like this approach and I, I think the stuff like the, the Falcon doors are, are gimmicky, but I also don't want to sort of gleefully uh, throw rocks at Tesla right now anyway. Um, cause they, at least they tried it, you know, they, they had to do their own thing to make their cars distinctive and unique. And they've really pushed the idea of premium, uh, EVs with, with features that you can't get anywhere else. So hey, I've always been, oh, an, yeah, I, I, I've I, always been an Elon Musk fan. I, I'm not a, a fan realistic of Elon Musk, fan, but, uh, no, but just a realist, but, but Tesla though, I'm glad they're in the industry. We need them in the oh, industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this 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 vehicle Absolutely. and the Jaguar I-Pace and the Mercedes yes. EQC and all these other EVs that are coming probably would not exist, certainly not in the form that they do, right. had it not been for, for Tesla and the, the degree of success that they've had. And, you know, Tesla deserves enormous credit for that, as I've repeatedly said, you know, for legitimizing the idea that an EV could be something really appealing in and of its own right without... Without ha you know, without being a glorified golf cart, and right. this is by no means a glorified golf cart. I mean, you know, this this is you know one of the things about this the the e-tron you know that we found it's exceptionally quiet you know when it comes to wind noise. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, there's virtually no wind noise in this thing, and right. they don't use active noise control on it. You know, I mean, it's very, very you know the airflow is very well controlled. Uh, you know, so you know I, I think. I think that this, I'm pretty sure this vehicle will be quite successful for Audi. I hope so. I, and I hope it gives people a reason to move into an electric vehicle without feeling like they've compromised, you know, their lifestyle or their driving experience. I do think this is a really good example of where a, you can swap out your internal combustion engine and, and actually potentially have a better driving experience 
than with an internal combustion engine. So I'm a huge fan. I would love to see about getting one of these because I just think they're fantastic. Oh, one, one more thing. Um, when you buy an e-tron Quattro, uh, it comes uh, with uh, a 9.6 kilowatt home charging unit. Yes. Uh, that, that, you know, comes in the car, comes packed in the car. And, you know, if you have a, a NEMA 1450 uh, socket in your garage, you can just plug it right in. If not, uh, they've got a deal with Amazon, you know, to connect you with, um, you know, local contractors uh, or electricians that can come in. You know, they'll, you know, they're all trained and, and you know, vetted, you know, to come in and uh, install the, the outlet for you and you just plug it in. And the, the nice thing about that, um, that unit, the, uh, you know, the cord that plugs into that socket, it's actually, you can actually unplug it from the, the wall unit and they've got different adapters. So if you already have, you know, some other socket, um, you know, you can, you can get different adapters that plug into to different types of sockets. Um, you know, and that, that comes bundled with the car. See that it's really well thought out. Yeah, That is yeah. the retail and customer service experience and imagination, um, being brought to bear, you know, to make that customer experience work really well, right. you know, so that yep. your, your early adopters aren't, um, beta testing for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I mean, I hope it's a success. I mean, it, it you're right. It it looks great. It seems like it's really, really well engineered to just deliver no matter what you do. You know, I, I'll be interested to see um, when it hits the magazine tests, like instrumented tests, whether they can do the type of you know quarter mile and and skid pad testing and stuff yeah. with it without it overheating. Yeah. Uh, oh, and it, it, that should not be a problem because, you know, in addition to liquid cooling of the battery pack, um, Audi, you know, their motors, the, their motor design, uh, their motors are also liquid cooled and both they have an external water jacket around the outside of the, uh, the motor. And then there's also uh, what they call a cooling lance. There's, there's a, a spindle, a, a, a lance that goes through the center of the, uh, the motor, through the rotor that circulates coolant through that as well. So it's cooled from both the inside yeah. and the outside. And, you know, they said that, you know, their goal was to make sure you didn't have any loss of performance when driving aggressively with this. Yeah, because, I mean, I think that's that's the key, right? You, you could talk about ludicrous mode and all that nonsense, and the, the, the zero to 60 electric car thing is, is yeah. just tired. Yeah, but they're, they're not, Yeah, they're not claiming, you know, Tesla levels of acceleration. Mm. Zero to 60 is going to be about five and a half seconds. Oh, who cares? That's quick. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. That's that's yes. more than quick yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't wait and, to see them on the road. And it's also got uh, uh, Alexa voice services built right into the infotainment system, so you can use your e-tron as a as an Amazon Echo device to you know control all your your stuff at home. Oh, there. Well, there love you go. That. And it'll spy on you and in return. You love that, Dan. Uh, well, actually, it, it doesn't. The uh, you you do have to press the button on the steering wheel to activate it. So you just instead of saying. Oh, it's not it's hey, not waiting for the watchwords. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not listening for a watchword. It, it only listens when you press the button. Oh, there you go. It's like my kids, except for there's no button to press. <laughs> they just don't listen. you got to take them Love back it. and get a button installed. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're better at pushing my buttons. Oh, yeah. yes, that's their job. <laughs> that's, that's what kids will do that. Uh, all right. Let's um, let's hit the questions because we had just a couple of really light ones. Um, the first one was from from Twitter from uh, Sam Minetti. 
He's asking, is a uh, $65,000 Jeep Gladiator worth it, or should he wait for the Land Rover Defender? Oh, mm. those are two different. Well, Defender's not going to be yeah. a pickup. Right, those are two different vehicles. That's true. Yeah. That's an and, Apple and you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you're comparing Defender, you you got to talk about Wrangler, not Gladiator. Yeah. Uh, but as the only one, you haven't driven the Gladiator, right, Dan? I haven't. I, I, I had an opportunity that I blew. Because I was too busy so, ogling the this round. One, this one, this one's for you, Rebecca. Yes. Is it? Would Would you take Would you take a Wrangler now, or even a Gladiator now, uh, over a Defender tomorrow? Hmm. I really liked the Gladiator. I, the Defender. Well, I mean, the Defender though, it won't be a pickup truck. So the Gladiator, I would buy a Wrangler. So we got to say Wrangler. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So well, ah, that's it. That's a tough one. I mean, I do love the Wranglers, but man, the Defenders. There's, I, I just love the Defenders. So, <laughs> so well, okay. I would probably so, so let, have let, to let, go. Okay. So let's say let's say Wrangler. You know, a Wrangler Rubicon. You know, is going to yeah. be in the low to mid fifty. Oh, you can easily yeah. make it sixty thousand with all the gingerbread okay. they'll yeah. sell you. Okay, so let's say, let's say okay, so let's say a sixty thousand dollar Wrangler Rubicon. Yeah. You know, would you take that over a Defender? Probably not, because I love the uniqueness of the Defender. But from a re- from a value standpoint, and uh, you know, a but I mean the I think the the Wrangler is going to hold its value really really well. Um, but the Defender is going to be a, a huge hit for Land Rover because there's tons of people that want that vehicle. And it's going to provide a lot of competition for the for the Wrangler, for sure. Well, so here's I mean, yeah. amongst the billionaires, because it's you know, the Jeep is the billionaires and busboys brand. <laughs> but Defender, but Land Rover is all about the billionaires. But here's, so, here's an interesting thing that um, they got a question when Jeep was up here, uh, or FCA. Um, mm-hmm. But somebody asked. Uh, what about a Wrangler that you guys put an upgraded interior in and you, you mm. make it like an, a super luxury, like almost like a, a G-Wagon competitor Wrangler? And of course, they they sort of smile and they they say, well, you know, we're not going to comment on future product, but you should keep an eye on things, which to me says <laughs> like they've at least had that discussion about making. Well, and they should they should have that discussion yeah. because. Because, you know, there is a lot of competition, especially with the new and really comfortable ride that the, both the Wrangler and the Gladiator provide now. So, you know, that's something that you could see these vehicles as daily drivers, which Land Rover definitely is. Yeah. You know, so so the, the luxury part, if you are somebody that is very focused on luxury, then you are going to buy the Land Rover. No question. I would very if, much rave about a luxury Wrangler. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to afford it, but I would rave right. about it. <laughs> no, I. I agree. I think. I think that there's opportunity there because the buyer has shown incredible tolerance for a higher price. But you do start to run into um, that. The the very fair question here. They're talking about different body styles, but you know, a a, a Land Rover versus a Jeep, um, just if, you know, it's a, it's a huge credit to Jeep that that's even a question. That's true. You know, I mean, that's amazing. What do you, what do you think the, 
the starting price of the defender is going to be? Well, you know, honestly, I haven't done a lot of research on it, so I'm not sure what they're going towards. But, you know, look at all the pricing that we've talked about today. It's got to be, you know, I think, I mean, they could go, they could go in the high 40s because because some of the Land Rovers. You think it'll be that are, low? Well, it it could be, it could be, but they could, they could do a very base stripped down you know, vintage version of it and then doll it up and get it and get one that's highly tarted up. So help me out here, though, the 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 um, the Defender is not replacing like the LR. Defender's not replacing anything. The Defender's not not replacing anything. It used to be sold in the States years ago. Yeah, no, I remember and they're that. Bringing it. It, yeah. it was um, it was a different Defender. I think it's strictly it's strictly incremental. OK. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I. I think you know what. Well, because because, but look at so the sport starts at thirty seven nine ninety, and then the disco goes at fifty two. So you know, there's room in there. They could put the defender right in that forty two to forty five range. The evoke is forty one eight. So you know the, and the new evoke is forty two. So they're not as extreme as people think. That's, again, very base. But there's room in there. They could put that. Now, they don't have anything. Well, the Disco's 52. So they've got something at 37 in the low 40s, high 40s, 52, and then it jumps to 68. So they could definitely do something in that 40s range. And you're also talking about a different buyer, because there's plenty of of people that are not interested in something as rugged and um, and authentic as the Defender, I think, will be. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm going to say get your jollies with the Jeep now because you can buy it. And then when the Defender arrives, drive it. And if you like it, trade the Jeep on it. Because it's going to have a ton of residual. There, so, there, there you go. go. There's, yes. a, there's a logical answer for you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Making sense tonight. Uh, all right. And so the, the other... the Hey, even a, even a stuck clock is right, right twice. Yeah, there, there it is. <laughs> uh, the other question that we had was from our, our friend Dan Mosquito. Is just, uh, I think he's joking, but he's asking if he should buy Tesla stock. <laughs> Which I... No. You should not buy Tesla stock. We don't. We don't give financial advice. You should, exactly. you should also not buy Uber stock, even though we are not a stock know. analyst yeah. team. Uh, I think you should. <laughs> you should do your research. Yeah, don't buy stock. Do your due diligence. Don't, buy an index don't fund. Don't buy stock and leave it alone. And that's that's that. Um, unless you like to gamble, and you know what? Then take all of your money and go put it on red in Vegas, and <laughs> probably do that as well. All right. I th- that's a that's pretty much a podcast uh so if you want to get in touch with us we are at uh wheelbearingscast at gmail.com um coming soon by the way is uh a email newsletter and i'll have more about that but i actually set up the post office box so we can actually do the newsletter because of um privacy laws you need to now um have a physical mailing address so we do and so we'll, we'll get that going and you can sign up for it. That's coming soon uh, once I figure out MailChimp. Uh, but in the meantime, please head over to Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can leave us a review there or iTunes or in the podcatcher of your choice. Uh, you can 
comment on the post at uh, wheelbearings.media and our Twitter handle is at wheelbearingscast uh, the only vowel is the A in cast um, and everybody else generally knows where to find us so uh, thanks for listening and uh, here's hoping something interesting happens before the next show thank you bye okay all right, so Amy Marentek, uh, your what your new role now at Ford now that you're back from China. So it's a, it's a new group that they put together called EPLM. It stands for Enterprise Product Line Management, and it's a group that's actually focused on owning the product from end to end, focusing on the customer profit and loss and the entire business. And is that applying to all the different product lines across the board now? It does. We have several groups. We have one focused on trucks, one on commercial vehicles, one on utilities, and the, and the one that I work on is icons. So our iconic vehicles. Yeah, and that's that's a new one. I mean, Ford has always had some iconic models like Mustang and, and various others, but the, the, the specifically having this group called Icons is something new for Ford. And why 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 is this particular group being created? Well, it's it's a unique customer, right? And uh, what we've done is we've combined Mustang, the Ford performance vehicles like GT500, GT350, the Raptor, the Ford GT, and then also we'll be bringing out a new vehicle, uh, Bronco, which okay. is very iconic. So that is our, our group of vehicles that we focus on. And what what is the overall strategy for the icons, and what 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 are you trying? You know, aside from you know, obviously you know, the the heritage of of some of those models, what's what are, what's the direction you're trying to go with that group? Well, you know, it's it's making sure that these vehicles are fit for the next 100 years. You know, Mustang's been around for 55 years, but making sure that we're focused on the customer, uh, focused on the business, and, and making sure that these are are delighting our customers for years to come. And you know, it's it's kind of an odd grouping, obviously. You know, everything from from GT to Raptor to to the various Mustang variants and and Bronco. Um, you know, and and you mentioned you know going into the next hundred years. What kind of what do you see happening with these kinds of vehicles as we transition forward into this new this new era? You know, it, it's interesting. You're you're seeing vehicles like Bronco now show up at Barrett Jackson. Right, so so things are changing a little bit. The definition of icon changes a bit, um, but making sure that we're relevant and and taking care of the customers that love us. And the one thing that's unique about every icon vehicle at Ford is the passion that the consumers bring um, to the product and and to the business, frankly. And they're not necessarily high volume vehicles, no. uh, but but they're they're still important to the Ford brand. You know what? What, you know, from a from a business standpoint, what what makes it so important to maintain these niche products as as part of the Ford lineup? I think it's important to have um, vehicles that are aspirational. You know, I, I I look at my my Raptor, and my son will sit and watch on his phone Raptor videos for minutes or hours on end. Same thing with Mustang, and um, you know, it's important we keep these vehicles relevant not only for people in my generation, but also so people in my my children's generation. And, and what you know, when you talk about relevance, you know, what do you see as what what sorts of things need to be done with these vehicles to keep them relevant in, in the you know in the 2020s and beyond? Well, I think the thing that that we're really good at is listening to the customer and the iconic customers, the customers that are buying the Raptors and the Mustangs, are very opinionated. They know what they want and uh, they know what's important to them. And, and the thing that that we're really good at and we continue to focus on is making little improvements all the time.
news every year, making like the GT350. This this year we're just making it a little bit better. Yeah, new tires, new, new suspension, new tuning, tires, better aerodynamics, yeah. chassis tuning. Um, you know, last year, a little more than a year ago, uh, Ford announced that going forward, all of its utility vehicles were going to have electrified powertrain options. Uh, Ford has also previously talked about the Mustang Hybrid that's coming. Um, you know, is is that part of you know is, is incorporating you know newer technologies like that? Is that a key part of keeping those vehicles relevant? In addition to also just trying to give the customers what they want? Yeah, I absolutely think. Um, you know, several years ago we launched the EcoBoost engine. It's now a core part of our vehicle strategy, whether it's on a Mustang or on an Explorer. And I think you're going to see that as we move into electrification. You're going to see it coming in on several different vehicles um, because that's where the market's going and, and that's what customers are looking for. But we'll still continue with our naturally aspirated and our EcoBoost engine, so we have we have something for everybody. Do you, do you see um, fully electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles being part of the Icon lineup at some point in the, the not-too-distant future? Yeah, I think I think that's where the future's heading. Um, we'll go there mindfully. Yeah. Uh, but I do think you'll see uh, some battery electric vehicles part of the Icon family. The, the Mustang-inspired cross-battery electric crossover is coming. Is that going to be part of the Icon group, or is that something separate? So right now it is part of the Icon's group, but we also make sure that we're working very closely with the other EPLM group that is our electric vehicle group. So, um, so we work together with that team. All right. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.